You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. Humans are future-oriented beings. The middle-aged accountant lays plans for her retirement in Arizona. A young couple scrimps and saves, hoping that one day they'll be able to buy a house. A college student studies toward a career in architectural design. We live our lives in light of our projected futures. This was said by, written by theologian Michael Williams, and he goes on to explain that it is important to know where we are headed because that tells us how to live in the present. In other words, where we are headed shapes our attitudes and our decisions right now. And Williams is right about that. And he isn't the only one to point it out. Others have observed that one cause of depression, certainly not the only cause, but one cause of depression is the inability to tell ourselves stories about the future. See, if you pay attention, we constantly tell ourselves stories about the future. We dream of what we're going to be, what we're going to do. We look forward to achievements and milestones. But when we feel like there isn't anything to look forward to, And sometimes when the present seems dark and the future seems even darker, and when you can't see your way out of that darkness, that's when hopelessness sets in. This is why Advent is important. See, we talk about the time of Advent being a longing for Jesus to come, and Maybe that makes this Advent holiday season seem somewhat less joyful than we might hope. But the reality is this is a longing and a hope for something that is better. See, the prophet Isaiah, when he was writing about that first coming of Jesus into the world, said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so as we come to this last part of our Advent story, we need to see that the God who wrote the story of creation is also writing an ending of hope, that God is restoring all things. And because he's restoring all things, we have a real and true hope for the future. There's really two parts of that that I want to hit on this morning. One is just the nature of this future reality. Then we want to talk a little bit about this future renewal. So in the first place, there is this future reality. What does this look like that we are longing for? What, what will this look like? And one of the reasons I point this out is because a lot of times I think we have some misconceptions about what that future reality looks like in the Bible. It's maybe natural for religion, which we think of dealing with spiritual things, so maybe it's natural for religions to picture a reality that is purely spiritual, in which we're set free from these 
bodies that break down from physical limitations. And, you know, sometimes even Christians picture going to heaven and becoming angels or some other sort of spiritual being. But that's not the picture that we get when we read the Bible. You might remember what C.S. Lewis said when we talked about creation back on the first Sunday of Advent a few weeks ago. And I quoted C.S. Lewis when he said this. He said, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. Into us. And we might think that's rather crude and unspiritual. But God doesn't. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Another way to put it is that human beings are a psychosomatic union. What that means is that we think of ourselves as having both a body and a soul, but we also need to see that that body and soul do not exist in isolation from one another. They're not separated from each other. In other words, your problem, whatever problem you have in this world today, it is not the fact that you have a body. And in fact, one of the reasons that God the Son had to be born into the world as a human being is because our physical state is part of what it means to be human. If God was just saving souls, if the spiritual realm was all that really mattered, there wouldn't be any reason for Jesus. There wouldn't be any reason for that baby in a manger. But God is not separating you out and then saving part of it. He's restoring the whole of you. And furthermore, the story of the gospel and the restoration is that it, the restoration that brings it about, God is coming to us. This is not about us going to God. God created a world in which his intention was to be with his people. You know, throughout the Old Testament and the story of Israel, we see that God wants to come near his people. And in the prophetic promises of the Messiah, that Messiah is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's God's intention. He comes to us. Nowhere in the Bible is salvation portrayed as being taken away or going somewhere else. You don't go somewhere else to get to God. God is always portrayed as coming to us. In other words, your future hope is not about escape. Your future hope is about restoration. When I was in seminary, a professor once posed the question of what heaven might look like. In other words, if heaven is not a purely spiritual place, but rather it is a restored world in which all things are as they were intended to be, it may very well be a place that looks much more like this world in which we live than we might expect. Now, obviously, the ensuing discussion involved a lot of speculation because the reality is the Bible doesn't tell us everything. And yet, the discussion was revealing. 
What occupations might exist in the new heaven and the new earth? Would there be law enforcement? Well, everybody seemed to agree, well, probably not. Would there be judges and attorneys? Well, what for? One student asked, well, what about doctors and surgeons? And the professor said, I don't know, maybe for fun. <laughs> but would there be architects and contractors and carpenters and stone workers? Of course humans will go on creating things. And what about things like artists and authors and songwriters? There's no question. One of the reasons that the arts are so important in virtually every culture on earth is that they resonate with the longing for something more, the longing for something that is restored and set right. You know the story about what happens if you play a country song backwards, you get your wife back, your dog back, your, you know, the future hope of the world is about the curse that has come into it being undone. It's about things being set right. It's about things being made new. And those things are real things, real stuff, material and physical. Okay, so that's the future reality of the world. But of course, to get there, that involves future renewal. And that's the other piece this morning. We need to see a future renewal take place. And that, of course, that's what we get at Advent in the coming of Jesus. Here's why Advent is significant. One of the lines that we sing in Joy to the World is, He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. God's restoration will extend as far as the curse is found. Now, I often say this about Jesus. When he comes into the world, he begins to demonstrate his power by performing miracles. The kind of miracles that he does tells us a lot about the hope that he brings. We often think, and I remember growing up, having this understanding that Jesus performs miracles because he is demonstrating who he is, that he is God. He is demonstrating that he has the power of God. And of course the miracles do that, because Jesus does, some, does things that nobody can explain, that aren't explicable unless he is God. But it's not just that. See, Jesus doesn't just do feats of strength. He doesn't do things like lift buildings and throw lightning bolts at people. When Jesus performs miracles, they are specific. Sick people are made well. Hungry people are fed. Destructive storms are calmed. And even a few dead people come back to life. So think about that. If the world was the way it is supposed to be, would there be hunger? Would there be sickness? Would there be destruction? Would there be death? See, all of those things exist in the world because of the curse brought in by humanity's rebellion. And when Jesus comes, he does make his blessings known as far as that curse is found. 
the curse when Jesus comes begins rolling backward and being undone. The kingdom of darkness is on the run. And creation is set right. History begins and ends with a creation story. Creation shows us what we and the world were intended to be, and the restoration shows us, it shows us ourselves and the world set right again. And it's important to recognize that we're not talking about a new world altogether, but a restored world. In the Old Testament story of the flood, the world is destroyed by water, and judgment and destruction are brought down on humanity. And yet, God does not do away with that world. And that's a model for the final restoration that we see at the end of Revelation, at the end of time. The end of the story. In the same way, you and the world will be restored, not done away with. The New York Yankee catcher Yogi Berra once said, I'd be pretty dumb if all of a sudden I started being something I'm not. And in the same way, it would not make much sense for the God of the universe to simply do away with his creation and start over. You and I were made for this world, and it's this world that will be made new. You will still be you. But you will be you as you were meant to be. And one of the ways we see this played out is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation, that brief passage that we read. Through the royal city, the new Jerusalem, flows the river of the water of life. And people can drink as much as they want. And and then we're told, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie explains what's happening there. She says, in Eden, the trees bore fruit in their season. That means once a year. But in the new and better Eden, the tree of life will yield a new crop of fruit every month. In Eden, the tree of life grew in the midst of the garden. But in the new Eden, the tree of life grows on either side of the river. It seems to have multiplied and expanded. It implies that everyone will have access to it. This was the tree that was forbidden to Adam and Eve. They were cast out of the garden so they would not eat from it. And Guthrie goes on to say, it's not just the fruit that will feed us, but the leaves of the tree will heal us. And in fact, they will heal everything. All of the scars left by sin will be healed. All of the wounds inflicted by harsh words, the infection of cynical attitudes, the canker sore of racism, all of it will be healed. All the emotional scars left by abuse, the relational tearing apart caused by divorce, the societal discord caused by pride, the governmental corruption caused by greed, all of it will be healed. It's the same world, but better. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Gospel of John records those words. 
We need to recognize that we are separated from God, that we are cursed unless we put our hope in Jesus and in what he did for us on the cross, which throughout scripture sometimes is also referred to as the tree. The tree that was taken away from Eden in Genesis at the curse has now become a blessing. And it has become the life that we need. The tree of life is no longer forbidden. God has come in the person of Jesus, and he holds out life and hope. If you will just simply give up trusting yourself and instead trust in him and what he's done for you. So there's that future reality, and to get there, we need that future renewal. There is one more piece, and that takes us to Luke. And Luke tells us about a future joy. Because we ought to ask, what kind of God would do this sort of thing? What kind of a God would do all of that? especially for human beings who turned away from him and are actually the ones responsible for the curse coming into the world in the first place. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable of a man who prepared a great banquet. He invited a lot of guests. But on the day of the banquet, they all made excuses. They all found other places that they needed to be. You ever throw a party and nobody came? And so this man, with everything prepared, he sends his servant out into the city, and he tells him to bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Of course, they don't have any place else to be, so they come. But there is still room. And so the man tells his servant to go farther, find more people. This is a parable of God and his kingdom. And this is a God who is a host, who has prepared a banquet, a feast, and he wants his house to be full. So what kind of a kingdom is this? Well, maybe we can explain it this way. In New Orleans a few years ago, there was an 11-year-old girl named Emily who loved Mardi Gras for whatever reason. She loved the parades, and her family brought her to see her favorite parade of all the parades that happened during that season in New Orleans. Now, the other thing you need to know is that Emily had a mental disability. And when her family brought her to her favorite parade, there was a group of drunk college students who picked up on the fact that she had a disability. And so, of course, being young and dumb, they made fun of her, and they said terrible things to her. Very quickly, her family took Emily and they left and they swore they would, never come to, they would never come to a parade again. But what happened was some members of the parade, some of the people involved in the parade, heard about it. And they decided to host a private parade. They found a nearby vacant warehouse and they set up their own private parade just for Emily. They convinced her family to not leave just yet and to bring her. And pastor in that city, Ray Kanata, tells what happened next. He says hundreds of members of other crews, the parade crews that 
dress up and join in these parades. Hundreds of members poured into the warehouse, and when Emily and her family walked in, we all cheered. And she was seated on a throne, and we all lined up to honor her. And at the end, someone declared her Queen of Emily Gras. And we all wept. And Kanata says, I looked around and I saw this group of freaks in every kind of costume in this ugly warehouse in the most blighted neighborhood in the city. And yet something important and lovely was happening. God is a host who wants his house to be filled. And he will stop at nothing to bring people in until it is. People like Emily, who are considered nobodies, become somebodies because the king welcomes them in and gives them a place at his table. See, notice in the parable who is there and who isn't. The ones who are well-to-do, the respectable, the ones who have it all together. They're not there. But the ones who are in need and who know they're in need, they come. See, if you don't think you need what the God of the universe is offering you when he sent his son into the world for you, you'll never get in. What kind of a community is this? The kingdom is a community of people who are in need. And what does that community look like? You know, Kanata describes that warehouse parade honoring a mentally disabled girl as a group of freaks in every kind of costume. And the reason they were different from the drunk college students who made fun of Emily was because they didn't think they were better than her. If you belong to Jesus, you need to think about the fact that eating and drinking and welcoming people in is a demonstration of the kingdom. And religious people often forget this. So maybe a couple of things along those lines there. One, this is why it's not uncommon for people to seek community in bars. You're old enough to remember the TV show Cheers. It's really a story about, I mean, it's a TV show sitcom about a bar, it's really a really a story about a community where people are accepted, where everybody knows your name. Now, of course, there are bad reasons to find community in a bar, as well as good reasons. But if you follow Jesus, you ought to be challenged by the fact that people are sometimes more likely to find community in a bar than they are in a church. And yet, at the same time, for all of its failings, we who are in the church, well, we do work at demonstrating the hope of restoration in that symbol of a banquet. At Resurrection, this is why we celebrate communion every week. And if you've been in other churches, you may be aware that weekly communion is... A lot of times, it's not common in Protestant churches. It's actually maybe more common today than it mm -hmm. used to be. Nevertheless, there's a lot of history and a lot of reasons for why it's not common. 
But one of them boils down simply to this. We forgot. Communion is not just a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. I mean, of course, it is absolutely that. Jesus' body and his blood given for you. But it is also a picture of the feast that will be held when all things are restored. We need to tell ourselves stories about the future. And we need to see the hope of restoration that God is bringing about. And we need to be shaped by that hope. Because we so easily forget. And we need to remember. The gospel story sometimes is described as the greatest story ever told. It's a good description because it is. The hope of restoration doesn't mean that we are sort of happy, clappy people who are always joyful and optimistic and sappy and survey. This is not a Hallmark movie. Christians are not people who are untouched by the brokenness of the world around us. On the contrary, the hope of restoration means instead that Christians ought to be a people who are the most honest, the most realistic about the pain and struggle in the world. People who belong to Jesus should be the most sorrowful and sometimes even the most angry at everything that is wrong in the world. Because our story tells us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And you can enter into that sorrow without being crushed by it. Because it also tells you that this is not the end of the story. God is restoring all things. And because he's doing that, there is hope for the future. The author of creation isn't done yet. He is coming to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Let me pray for us.